0: race again is not something that we find in bodies but something that's imposed onto them and something that is used then to create a social hierarchy very visibly welcome
1: to the book society podcast where we talk to interesting people about interesting books it's really that simple okay here we go Welcome to the Book Society podcast. I'm Lucas Cantor Santiago. You can just call me Lucas or whatever you like. Professor Nicholas Mirzoff is our guest. He is a professor of media, culture, and communications at NYU, the New York University, one of the greatest schools in the world. His work has appeared in The Nation, Hyperallergic, The New York Times, The Guardian, Time, and The New Republic, uh, among many, many other places. He's written several books How to See the World, The Right to Look, an Introduction to Visual Culture, Seinfeld, A Critical Study of the Series, which I probably want to talk to you about another time maybe, but I, that sounds fascinating, and uh, Watching Babylon. Uh, he is a Mellon ACLS Scholars and Society Fellow in residence at the Magnum Foundation. He's an Aster visiting lecturer at Oxford University. You may have heard of it. It is in Oxford. And his background is in art history. Professor Mirzoff's book is White Sight. It's from MIT Press. My copy is Still Warm. It's from 2023. And it is fascinating. It is at times a little bit, a uh, little bit hard to swallow. And uh, I'm excited to just hear hear your thoughts on it. So, my first question, um, and a question that you open the book with, is seems obvious, but it's very important. Uh, and that is, what is whiteness?
0: That is, of course, the question, Lucas. And thank you for having me on the show this evening, and uh, very nice to speak with you here. I think the perhaps the, the important thing to start with here is to say that whiteness isn't a characteristic of bodies mm-hmm. and we can think about this in a couple of ways my own personal experience when i grew up in the uk i was certainly white but i was not fully white because i was not properly english my last name that you struggle to pronounce you should see how people mangle it in britain and that would inevitably lead to this question where are you really from saying that yes we recognize that you're sort of okay, but you're not really one of us. Now, when I moved to the United States, that changes. And it takes me a while to to realize that here, the color line is absolute. You're on one side of it or the other. There's no ambiguity. And so that means it's nothing to do with my body, which has stayed more or less the same, despite the ravages of age. We can also look at internally within the United States, the history of who counts as white, Professor Mirzov, I'm going to just, I'm going to challenge you right off the bat.
1: Um, so okay. you're talking to to me, you can see what I look like. I definitely am on either side of the color line and I've noticed that in my life. Like I, I am sometimes so white that people will tell racist jokes to me because they think I'm one of the boys. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I am excluded for thing, from things because I'm colored. I, uh, I'm i Puerto Rican and I um I get asked the question that you got asked in, uh, in the UK all the time, where are you from? And they don't mean, were you born in Boston? They mean, where is your ancestry from? Um, sure. and the, the answer is I'm from Boston, much like Samuel Adams,
0: but, um, but yeah, my mom's and, born and that, that really just goes to my point, because mm-hmm. I mean, he, you know, people are in this country sensitive to the boundary of Latinx identity and where does it land and how does it fall? In Britain, you'd be invisible. You'd be, then no one would know that. Mm-hmm. So these are culturally conditioned perceptions rather than innate conditions of difference between bodies. Sure. Bodies come in all different shapes and sizes and tones and whatever but that's not what whiteness is whiteness is a technology and it's a technology for creating a hierarchy within society and for saying these people who will become identified as white who will learn to be white will gain certain privileges and certain advantages that other people will not and what I've been interested in thinking about is how that's system which is so carefully constructed has become so naturalized that we don't even see ourselves doing it Hmm. so that perhaps the key example of the operation of this difference is when a police officer pulls up their vehicle and they're looking at someone they think may be committing a criminal offense and if that person they perceive that person to be white they're going to react in a very very different way than if they do not now into that split second judgment then goes literally centuries of stereotyping, of assumptions, of ideas, and they're all the learned experience that the individual brings to that moment that they've ac- accumulated. And we accumulate this surprisingly young. Mm. So there's a famous story by the psychiatrist Franz Fanon, who is from the Caribbean island of Martinique. And in Martinique, most folks are Black, and there's really no co- conversation about that. But he gets to France to do his psychiatric training and takes a train, and this would have been in the 1950s, and he sits down and a young boy jumps up and shouts to his mother, look, Mama, a Negro. And he is just, at first, doesn't know what to do. He laughs, but the child keeps saying it and then changes the register, goes, look, Mama, a Negro, I'm frightened. And then she says, sure, she'll annoy him. And so here's this child, five years old, who's learned, even in 1950s France, nothing like as diverse a country as it is today, to make a racialized distinction, to know that his mother should pay attention to him for saying that, and that he's supposed to say, I'm frightened, simply because he's perceived this person to be of African descent. So, what I'm interested in then is how quickly we learn this, but it's because it's something that we learn. We could choose, if we decided to, to unlearn it. It's not then given. It's not something we can't do anything about. I can't change my hearing, which is very mediocre. I wish I could improve it. Mm. I can't. But I could change my attitude to music, but also in this instance, to, as we have been doing collectively since 2020 in particular, how this hierarchy of society actually plays out in practice. And these are the kinds of changes then that I'm hoping this book will help people recommit to. Hmm. Yeah, What I mean, your, your book is largely
1: about how these changes are uh, perpetuated. Maybe I'm, maybe you'll disagree, but how they're perpetuated through the arts, and how, how do the arts contribute to the concept of
0: whiteness? The question here, then again, is this way of seeing. Hmm. We bring a great deal to the moment of seeing someone. Our bodies are evolved, our eyes, our brains. to. Really focus on that moment. How do we know this? Because if we look at the evolution of digital technologies, everything's centered on selling us things through visual images. Mm-hmm. Instagram, TikTok, all those apps. What are they doing? They themselves say, We're trying to capture eyeballs. Because in, when you capture someone's eyeballs, you've got their attention, and then you can sell them something. Mm-hmm. In this case, then, what the visual media have done over the past half century, in which Europeans have expanded out of their part of the world all over the world and brought their ideas about whiteness with them, is to create what I'm calling white sight, a way of seeing. And this has a number of key components. In the early 15th and 16th century, Europeans developed a system of seeing that we now take almost for granted as if it is seeing, which we call perspective, the system through which distance appears on to a two-dimensional surface to be three-dimensional. So all our cameras, all our devices, The screens that we're using now are structured around that system. But it is just a system. It's not the truth. It's not how we actually see, and it's certainly not how the world actually is. In that system, all light converges onto one point. That point is the person doing the seeing. It's a very powerful position. And in applied usage in the Atlantic world, that person had a name, the overseer, who ran the plantation in Atlantic world colonies where labor was done by enslaved Africans through their power of seeing and surveying so this has merged in the modern world into the term surveillance I, I'm and sorry
1: I think I've, I've missed the connection but we were talking about like perspective in the like 15th century Florence artistic mm-hmm. way and yeah. I, I I missed the jump from that to When you were talking about a point, I thought you were talking about the vanishing point, but you're talking about the point of the overseer, which is the mirror image of the vanishing point.
0: So the the vanishing point converges in an eye. Hmm. And that eye, in theory, is a drawing with lines and vanishing points and so on. But in applied practice, it's used to control and to literally map in terms of the charts and Land titles that were applied to the new colonies, and then to metaphorically place an area under surveillance. Hmm. The obviously can't literally see everything that's going on no, we can't, you can you can't now. you can now. Yeah. and that's exactly that's exactly where we're at, right? So the, what we've done with digital technologies is simply take that way of seeing, decenter it and network it so that, Tens of thousands of CCTV cameras are doing just that work. Hmm. And just kind of a little bit different, though, in the sense that the CCTV sees what happens, but doesn't stop it. So that afterwards, you can say it was that guy. The idea of the Overseer is to prevent anything from happening at all, to get in the way of any possible uprising or disturbance. Hmm. But you can't distribute that throughout an entire society. But there is a, there's a long historical connection that absolutely functions. And we live in a society that has become surprised that it's under surveillance. We look around and say, oh, wow, uh, this is the era of surveillance capitalism. But actually, there is no capitalism without surveillance. If we think of the plantation and the overseer, or if we think of the factory with a foreman, always, always gendered male at that time, whose job it was to watch the other workers working to make sure they were doing what they were supposed to do. That's entirely their job. And today, of course, we're all responding to someone who's called our supervisor, who literally looks over us uh, and makes sure that our work is is being carried out in the appropriate way. Hmm. So surveillance is a dominant technology for the mechanisms of Capitalism, the social order under which we live, which is at the same time a way of producing race. Race again is not something that we find in bodies, but something that's imposed onto them, and something that is used then to create a social hierarchy very visibly and very dramatically, where you have systems of slavery or segregation, as we have had for the majority of the American colonial experience. Mm. But even in, I would would say I
1: would say all of it, really. I mean, when when is yeah? When have we not have some kind of system of segregation or slavery?
0: I mean, I live in New York, and uh, one of the most depressing statistics I've encountered is that high schools are now more segregated than they were before Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954 legally desegregated schools. But now, house prices and people's capacity to live where they choose is so diminished that. In effect, we are now in a more segregated city than we were in 1954.
1: Yeah, I I mean I take some solace in the fact that the segregation is no longer written into law. But and that is progress, but it it is still functionally enforced by other mechanisms.
0: It's written into police practice. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we've seen this time and time again. We've seen so many young African men shot by police. And yet when there is a white shooter, they take him into custody without killing him. And sometimes they buy him a hamburger on the way home.
1: Well, it's not its not written into police practice. I mean, there, there's no manual that says, shoot oh, black guys, saying. don't shoot white guys. So, I mean, I,
0: I slightly misspoke, yeah. but it, it, it's not. Yes, that's true. Yeah. I mean, that, not, that is is—that is what generally happens,
1: but that's not their official policy. Yeah.
0: It's its in effect what they choose to do. And there's that moment of white like, sight where they're seeing Dylan Roof, who's the perpetrator in Charleston, who's just killed a church full of people, but he's white. And so they choose to take him into custody in a certain way. Whereas we've just seen these incidents in the last several days where a a teenager, a 16-year-old kid, walks up to somebody's door by mistake because he's picked the 115th Street rather than the 115th Terrace. And the man behind the door is so scared of the apparition of a teenager, a 16-year-old, that he shoots him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Without speaking a word through a closed door, that the peculiarity, if you like, of white site is also that it's silent, It like a CCTV camera. That man could have said, excuse me, man, what are you doing here? You shouldn't be here. He would have said, I'm looking for this address. And he could have said, no, it's not here. It's somewhere else. And that would have been the end of it. But no, he chose. He chose to do this. And there was another incident in upstate New York of the same kind on the same weekend. So we, are, we do see this persistence, persistent violence. And this is, unfortunately, one of the aspects that one needs to emphasize here is obviously there's a gap, if you like, between the way that I'm describing white site imagining the world and how it actually is. That gap is closed by the application of violence. Hmm. That if it doesn't align, if it doesn't make sense, then use force, and it will. And that is what we have seen now for literally centuries. The
1: depressing thing, honestly, and and I I don't mean this to, the depressing thing is the banality of these anecdotes. I mean, like they are all horrible. They all involve the ending of a human life, but they're so common that, you know, like a a shooting happens every day in somewhere in America. It might happen every day in every city, probably not in every city, but it happens all the time. And it's become so uh, prevalent that you can't, you can't think you can't be sympathetic to all of them because, because th- they're constant. So like, you, it's just like, it's very, yeah, I've really been feeling this as I, I have two young kids and, you know, we go out and do things all the time. And I never thought about, Oh, am I like in a safe place? If a shooter walks in, I never used to think about that stuff, but I do now. I can't stop thinking about it. And I think to to uh,
0: that's true. Mm. And I, I don't want to mitigate any of that at all. And I don't want to diminish it. I want to take a, resolutely attempt to try and make something that's not wholly negative out of that mm-hmm. by saying, why is that happening? One of the reasons I think that's happening is because a certain small segment of people who strongly identify as white, who believe the whiteness is somehow making them superior, feel that that belief is under threat. Mm. And they call this white replacement, the idea that somehow they they white folks are being replaced by different people and that this is wrong because they are inherently better. And none of that makes sense. So the only thing you can actually do to try and close the gap between these ideas of what's actually happening is to use violence. Hmm. Unfortunately, in this country, we made the use of violence remarkably easy. So in almost any other country in the world, it's very hard to get hold of a gun. We're we're a very efficient people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, in this particular instance, yeah, we've allowed it to become all too, all too simple to do that. I I feel that in other societies where you've, you 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 come to the brink of, a, of of what is essentially a paramilitary warner, hmm. in the sense that it's not organised, people are not again signing up to belong to an underground army, but in practice, day um, day in day out, as you say these massacres are taking place, that at some point a society will have to make a choice. And that's really what this book is in part about, is saying let's not assume that this is given. It's not given. Hmm. Everything that happens here that we're describing has been made by humans. And it's therefore, because it's made by humans and not by a divinity or by, by natural processes that we can't control, we can undo them if we choose. And I, I do believe that. Hmm. Do you think that there's
1: any... so? Uh... You said a while back, and I meant to jump on it, that there's no capitalism without oversight. You used a better word, surveillance. There's no capitalism without right. surveillance. But is there is there a society without surveillance? I mean, it, to, to uh, foreshadow our next episode, I mean, even the kingdom of Benin was essentially an autocracy. Um, and to go back to the earliest civilization that we have any evidence of, Sargon the Great was basically a gigantic plantation owner who commanded thousands, hundreds of thousands of people to build him temples and farm his stuff. And he would give them the crumbs from his table as their recompense. And I, I mean, it is a it is a better life for a human to wander around a fertile area, gather the food that they need and retire to their small band. Um, but we've somehow convinced the the world that um, that it's actually better to work for someone. And it is net now, 7000 years later, definitely better for every individual But that, that, you know, I think we had a little spike in about the third century of Rome and now every other time it's been kind of worse, you know, and and people have been subjugated and, uh, there's always been a a surf class. I guess there probably still is a surf class now. It's just, we're so separated because we're so global. So, so yeah, my question is, is there there any kind of society, any kind of like organization of more humans than you can uh, personally know that can exist without extensive surveillance?
0: The one, I think the way, way to approach this question is to is to use the famous quote about democracy, which hmm. it, it's not a very good system of government, but it's better than all the others. Hmm. And that that's the case here too, I think. Yes, I think there's always going to be a degree of, of monitoring and surveillance. You're a parent. I, I, I'm a parent too. Hmm. You don't let your two-year-old carry on their daily activities without being in some way overseen, right? And, and that's it. That's all to the good, and that should happen. What we're talking about here, though, is, is where your computer counts up how many keystrokes you've made, and if you don't make it up, it sends an alert to somebody, and you get in trouble for that. Or where mm. Amazon employees are told they only have 75 seconds to take a bathroom break, and they have to put X number of objects into packages an hour, or else they're going to get dismissed. There's a, there's a balance to be struck. And I think one of the ways to think about this is you use the, the idea of the global. And I I feel perhaps that we're in a moment where everything was rushing towards the idea of let's create one big, great, huge global society right up until the pandemic, I think. Mm. And right now, I think maybe we're taking a look and going, is that such a great idea? Is it such a great idea to, to take a fish that's caught in Alaska, which we used to do, ship it all the way to China to have its bones removed, put it in a package there and then ship it back to North America for somebody to eat it as a fish finger—is hmm. that a good idea? Or maybe we need to start thinking. Perhaps there's a better balance to be struck somewhere between the hunter-gatherer band of the of, of traditional societies and this. Hmm. And I do th- I think there's a, there's a, there's a good deal to be said for that. In part because there's oversight, and then then there's also a counter to that. There's a look back. There's a there's the way in which we say, "I see you trying to see me." And that's what democracy is. Democracy is the is the attempt to strike the balance between those that we entrust with social power, and those in whose name that power is granted. And there's a widespread sense that that's out of balance. I think, and actually, I think that extends on the right hmm. as well as on the left. I don't necessarily. I disagree with many of the things on the on the right, but I don't necessarily disagree with them when they say things like we should be able to pass bills through Congress without having to go through the Speaker or we should be able to have a vote on who wants to be the Speaker. Those should be fairly democratic processes. I'm not necessarily against that. And there are places then in which even people who would otherwise be widely, widely disagreeing could perhaps agree that the actual practice of democracy has given too much ground to the practices of surveillance. Where, Mm. you know, I was in London recently where I'm from, and while I was there, I read that if you if you spend the av- a day in London, you are on average on average seen by 300 CCTV cameras in a day. That seems to me that we got a bit too far there, and that that's, that seems excessive. Mm-hmm. That can what what really can be the benefit of that? Even if we even if we think that there's a benefit to closed circuit television in certain circumstances, and of course there can be. Mm. You know, when I go in and out of my university now, you have to use, there's a swipe card and there's a computer and there's a security guard and there's CCTV. And yes, I understand that there is this chance that you you might have a a, a delusional person. I'm not sure that's going to stop them. Hmm. When we've had those circumstances, what it does mean is that when I bring an outside guest, say you want to come and give a talk at my class, it's an extraordinary process to get you in. It's like getting you into Fort Knox. <laughs> and again, I feel like this is our whack. I would like somebody who wants to visit my university library to be able to do that, to read a book. That's really all there is to do in there. And mm-hmm. if they choose to just sit there and sit in the warmth or the air conditioning, if that's where it happens to be, I don't really care. Uh, but apparently my, my employers do. They think it's extremely important to keep people out. But I, I think we've lost something there. Well, do you think,
1: I, I think in a, in a, please disagree with me if you think I'm wrong, but I think in a society, in a capitalist society, you're, the, the promise of it is that you can win, that anybody can win. It's a game that anybody can win in theory. Um, but that even, even if they were completely equitable, they're still going to be winners and losers. And the losers are going to get disgruntled and, the The way to rectify that situation is through violence. And so even in the most egalitarian possible democratic society, there are still going to be people that are left behind. And, uh, the evidence for this is, you know, people who live in abject poverty by American standards are still living better than almost every human being who has ever lived. They're not living nearly as well as the people who might be their neighbors, you know, mm-hmm. but, but they're still like, you know, they're, uh, and, and they are justifiably pissed off that, someone next door to them who, you know, is maybe no different than them has just gotten a luckier break than they have and is enjoying a lot more comforts in life and whose family is better set up and who will have better outcomes for their children. That is a reasonable thing to be upset about. But it's, um, my point is that it's never like, can you ever mitigate that? Because if, if the, like, you know, if all of a sudden tomorrow, the poorest people in America live like the richest people in America, but then the richest people in America are exponentially more, you know, is people are going to be the same degree of upset because it's the disparity, I think, not the not the absolute condition that people respond I mean,
0: to. Two, two things i say to that. One is that the degree of inequality now is more than it's ever been. Mm. I mean, there have always been people with, as you say, vastly more wealth. Mm. And there have been people who, who suffer because they, they have inadequate... But
1: another way to say that, though, is that there are more extremely wealthy people now than there have ever been, because there, there couldn't be more disparity between the king of England and a serf. <laughs> you know, um, It's just that there was only one Actually king of not. England. I
0: mean, see, this is, the, this is hmm. the thing. The multiple now, and this has been shown by the business leaders, the multiple now between the, the amount that the CEO of ExxonMobil gets paid mm-hmm. and his them staff, that multiple is so much larger mm-hmm. now. Than it has ever been because of stock options and these other things
1: now right but my, my point my point is that the mailroom staff is living like a 15th century king he's got all the all the food he wants he's got all he's protected he's basically
0: free probably drives around in a car you know see ah uh, but there's the that's the catch-22 that i was going to call to our attention here because because our our, our sense of Freedom has centered so largely around the extraction of fossil fuels hmm. and the use of carbon. We're now in a place where we're very close, and this, this is not sort of this is n- no longer the realm of futurology. To say if we continue like this, it won't matter. You can have as much wealth as you want, or as little. But the crisis is upon us, and the crisis of how we are going to practice just staying alive and this is i mean you know in new york in the last several days today it's 50 degrees it's quite cold mm-hmm. three days ago it was 90 degrees in april and then a few days before that we had a frost mm-hmm. you know we had freezing conditions so it's not possible in other words to continue the way that we have even if let's like even if i grant you all of that mm-hmm. that you just said let's say all of that's true just for, the sake of argument. We can't carry on like that. And one of the ways that we see, where does this come from? How have we how have we got to this place? That history of colonial expansion and extraction has led the idea that Europeans and others arrive in a place, they say, what's here? Mm. Let's take it. Let's take the gold at first, but that ran out. Let's have people labour for us, to grow sugar, which is one time the most wealth producing item in the world. then we turn to extraction of energy. And this seems like a gift, right? Here's this stuff, it comes out of the ground, you burn it, it creates an enormous amount of energy that fuels an industrial revolution, catch 22. By releasing the whole history of the planet's carbon growth mm-hmm. over the last two centuries, we are now in a place where we may not be able to continue surviving as an animal species so something's going to have to change and it's going to have to change not in the next hundred years but in the next decade if we're going to actually not end up living in a sort of rather bad science fiction movie right uh i mean i
1: i agree with you i there's we did another episode um about a book that i will recommend to you um by adam Dore, who uh was a professor of um He studies technology and basically his thesis is there has never been more cause for optimism than there is today because technology has gotten us into this mess. Technology is literally the only thing that can get us out of it. And people are working, smart people are working on it um, and making pretty fantastic progress. And it's, uh, and I mean, he would disagree with this characterization, but it seems like uh, basically either technology is going to fix this problem or we're all going to die. So let's just hope the technology fixes it, do everything we can to, to mitigate it. But the, but the, the problem with, um, I mean, n- people aren't going to stay poor, you know, to, um, to avert climate change. It's just that the human mind doesn't work that way. And I, you know, I'm very aware that driving an SUV, which I do, uh, is not great for my children, even though it's great for my children right now. It's not great for their future. But you know, right. and I know all that. I, that's this is all like baked into the fabric of my being and my intellectual life. But like, I still bought one because it's big and it's comfortable. You know,
0: and I, this, I think, this is why we then don't leave these choices strictly to individuals. Mm-hmm. If I was going, if I organized in such a way that. A hybrid SUV or an electric one was the same price to you because yeah. somebody we were subsidizing the price, you'd probably choose to get. I that. would have th- hands
1: down gotten it. Yep.
0: Because it isn't. As we took that choice during the pandemic, we said, you know what? We can't let people go to work because they're going to get infected. But we also can't let people starve. So we gave people resources. And that actually worked fairly well. Uh, it worked so well that we kind of overheated the economy a little bit. And we had to kind of slow it down. But it did show that it's possible to organize the social in a different way than just saying everybody has to go to work, that's the strict rule, and it's all about individuals. Actually, if you intervene, you can find there's a kind of a way of balancing these things Mm -hmm. uh, and a way of, of, of organizing a culture so that the gap between the richest and the poorest, which may very well exist, is not intolerable. And the gap between the richest and the poorest doesn't mean that the possibility of life for people is diminished. I mean, all this so-called border crisis that we're seeing is people trying to move out of countries where agriculture is no longer really possible at the scale that it, of the family and the small farm because of climate change. What are you going to do? What did people, what did Europeans do? What did Americans do when Large farms came along, they moved to the cities and looked for work. Hmm. That's the story of the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. Now, Latin American brothers and sisters are doing the same thing now, and we're building walls to keep them out. But that's never worked. That's not going to work. It's historically never worked, and there's no reason to assume that it will now. So I think think what
1: you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that our options are we can have uh, a completely free market a, um, functioning, uh, planet or a high standard of living. And really only two out of three of those are possible.
0: (laughs) I I think it depends how you measure high standard of living, doesn't Mm. it? Um, if we're going to measure it in terms of, you know, expensive toys and, um, and, and and dramatic properties and so Mm. on, then maybe that has to change a little bit. Mm. But If you measure it in terms of quality of life, if you measure it in terms of how much time do you have to choose to do the activities you'd like to? I see musical instruments behind you. I'm sure you enjoy playing, playing music as much as anything in your life, right? If you have more time to do that, isn't, isn't that life a, a better life than one where you're hitting the keyboard? <laughs> P- Professor, you're,
1: you're asking the wrong person because I, I get to do pretty much whatever the fuck I want with my life. So, <laughs> yes, you're, yes. Would, if I, I had less time, I would be sad.
0: What's that? I mean, I think we'd all want that. Yeah. We'd all want that. Yes. Um, and, you know, again, that's, you know, why am I a professor? Because it does give me a considerable range of choice, not absolute, but good range of choice about how I spend my time and to engage with ideas that matter to me and to try and help other people to, to see what I'm on about. Uh, and those are very valuable things to me. It's not that I think, I, I when I talk to other folks, they don't necessarily find the same level of engagement in what they're doing. Hmm. Yeah,
1: I would totally agree with that. I think one of the reasons that I jokingly said that I was able to do basically whatever I want, whenever I want is because I take these things very seriously and I get quite good at them to the point where they're professionally valuable to other people. So, you know, when I have a client, I have to do whatever the client wants. Um, but that it brings me joy to do that. So, so I want to ask you one more question about white site and then we have to move on yeah, to, we'll um, you know, one of Britain's many, uh, uh, what, what do you call them? Uh, blunders, genocides—you you know yes. these things that you guys do well. so well. Um, catastrophes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as as Americans, we're we're learning, but we have not quite reached your level. We're we're working on it. So, what is the goal of analyzing and criticizing whiteness in the way that you have and that you continue to do?
0: I suppose that the ultimate goal is to produce a society where. People's choices are not given by somebody else's decision as to how they look and to and to and what their capacities as a human being must be. I think we live in a society where too much of that choice is taken out of our hands. We've seen that repeatedly because of the terrifying numbers of the statistics of those killed by police. We saw it during the pandemic by the early. Disparity between the numbers of Black, Brown, and Indigenous people dying from COVID compared to the number of White people. Although, thanks to public health education, that gap actually is now closed. And we see it in the conditions and opportunities that are available to children and to learners of all kinds, uh, which are still strikingly differentiated by ethnicity and social background. I see this as a as an educator. Because I see that I work in a remarkably diverse city. And yet my classroom isn't anything like as diverse. It's enormously diverse internationally. There are people from all over the world, and that's remarkable. But not from not from not to match the diversity of New York City's US demography.
1: Well, yeah, I mean NYU, it's gonna be ethnically diverse, wealthy people or the children of ever. It's uh. the most expensive school in the country, if I'm not mistaken, or at least it's got to be in the top five still.
0: That's not for me to say. Yeah. But, I, you know, I, I see that. I mean, it's true at NYU, but it's true at most mm. institutions.
1: Yeah, it's, I think USC, uh, where you know where I am, and NYU are yeah. sort of jockey between each other for most expensive school in the country. Yep.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid so. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're very similar institutions in that regard. Mm-hmm. And we, yes, we made education into a commodity. It's a very expensive one at that. Uh, and I think about education is a right. I think um, I was very fortunate when I was young that I didn't pay for my undergraduate degree and I didn't pay for my doctoral degree either. And that was a gift that was won for me by the people that fought for Britain in the Second World War. And when they came home, they said, actually, thank you very much. We'd like things to be a little bit different now. Um, having, having done all that, we'd like to get something back and Free education, free higher education, free healthcare, social housing—these things were absolutely at the top of the list for people. And over time, unfortunately, we slip back on that. Hmm. Uh, we slip back, but that's not—that's not unattainable. It—it it, it is something that, as we chose to do before, we can choose to do it again. We have to figure out a different way of doing things at universities. Maybe there's less climbing walls and swimming pools, and maybe. Um, There's more of a focus on what actually goes on in the classroom and less of a focus on it making it a four-year vacation. I don't think that's necessarily a terrible thing in exchange for enormously more affordable experience, right? I don't think we're I don't think we're going to get to the place yet where we can go back to it being free, but we could imagine that Mm -hmm. it would just take a different, a different way of thinking about things. White site, in particular, this book. I think it was motivated above all by a sense that when I was a young person, which is sadly a while ago now, it seemed fairly obvious coming out of the 1960s and 70s that by the time I was the age that I am now, that all of this would be ancient history, Hmm. that you would be laughing in disbelief at the idea that humans were distinguished by something as superficial as skin tone. And for a good long while, it didn't seem like we were making tremendous progress, but it did seem like we were inching down that field, if you like. And then quite suddenly and very dramatically in the 2010s, we took a sharp turn back to a system and an idea that racialized distinction was inevitable, natural, good, positive thing. We saw that in Britain with the uh, exit from the European Union. We saw it here with the, uh, the rise of the far right, the election of Donald Trump. We saw it in Brazil with the election of Bolsonaro. So it wasn't a local phenomenon. It wasn't the thing where you could say, oh, people there, they're making a terrible set of mistakes, but they'll get over it. It was a worldwide you know, structural phenomenon. And so for me, as someone who had worked, I wrote a book that, Came out in 1995, called Bodyscape, and at that time I looked at museums, I looked at statues, I looked at whiteness, uh, all the many of the things that are in White Site that we've looked at today, published some 25 years later. Hmm. And at that time, as I say, I feel that you could see that there was still a gap, but you felt optimistic, hopeful. You believed that it was likely. That, that gap was going to be closed, and it was going to be closed fairly soon. Now, when I sat down to write this book, I didn't have that sense of optimism. It felt like urgent and necessary to say to my fellow white-identified white-presenting people, hang on a minute, is this really the world that we want to live in? Are we really so convinced that what matters above all else is that people identified as white have a priority over those who are not, and it does seem that for a very significant sector of at least the U.S. electorate, that's that's the case. But I don't think it's true for all of them, and I think it's also it, it, it felt to me to be my responsibility as somebody who went on marches in 2020, who showed up at events. It was pretty standard point of of argument at those events, that someone would say, you know what, we have this doctrine of white supremacy in this country, but it's really the responsibility of people who are white to try and do something about it. And pretty much everybody who was there would agree with that at that time. And Mm. so what I'm saying now with this book is, remember when we said that, let's not backslide on that promise, because we can't assume, and I know this from my own life experience, that time will take care of this. It, it won't necessarily it might, but it's much more likely to do that if we make a series of engaged choices. Now I don't think that this book uh is going to you know change the opinion of a Tucker Carson or Sean Hannity or that kind of person. That's not my goal. Mm-hmm. My goal is to say to the to the broadsway the people who are, who do not believe themselves to be racist who would have no who don't want to see anything like that in their everyday lives. What might we actually do about it? How has it come to this? And building on that idea of how we've created a society like this, how we might then take some concrete steps to improve it. And I make some suggestions to that end because we're seeing certain things that have already happened. We've seen a widespread social movement to take down statues. And I argue in this book that the statue isn't just a decoration or uh, an amusement in a public space, but it's actually an infrastructure that helps support this idea of whiteness as a different kind of social being because the texts that write about that idea use the statue as their example of the superiority of whiteness, not a particular form of body, but statues. And this is a remarkable thing in a way, is to say that The most elite form of human society, according to these kinds of texts, not what I believe, is exemplified not by a particular kind of body, but by a statue, and a very specific kind of statue: that one made in ancient Greece or Rome out of marble. Hmm. Ignoring the fact that in ancient Greece and Rome themselves, those statues were very brightly coloured, all over The, the marble was completely invisible, and you can see some examples of what they would have looked like in the Metropolitan Museum if you if you go by there. And they're very bright indeed. They would sit comfortably in the apartment of Donald Trump and seem quite a home. <laughs> and it's just a historical accident that these things lost all of that over the hundreds of years between the flourishing of ancient Greece and Rome and their rediscovery in the European Renaissance. when they were dug out of the ground, literally, and, and they were shiny white. The people assumed that it was meant that these bodies were white, but it wasn't. We've taken that and turned it into a system of belief. And you cannot really go terribly far in the United States without running into one of these statues. We did an audit through a group called the Monument Lab in Philadelphia. They counted there are 48,000 monuments and statues in the United States. That's a really significant amount of material. Overwhelmingly, those statues represent white men and they represent white men who were connected to the military. Hmm. So, we've got an enormous deal of trouble and expense and creativity just over the country, particularly densely packed into the northeast of the country, but around the south and the west coast as well with these monuments. And we cannot assume that they're just a, a sort of trivial accident. We've gone to an enormous degree of expense and trouble also to support a system of museums around the nation. And if you go to Washington DC, this is always my example of this, you'll see, if you can stand on a high point, at one end of the mall is Congress, the other end is the White House, in between dozens of museums, much larger in many cases than, than the Capitol and the White House as making it quite clear that the museum is a social institution, it's an institution of government, and it's an institution of power. Most of the things that are in museums were taken from somewhere else and brought to the place where they are now, usually without the consent of the people who made it, or at ridiculous terms of trading, where trinkets or tiny amounts of money will be exchanged. Museums are used as evidence, then, of the superiority of certain kinds of cultures. And they are based in London, they're based in New York, and they're based in Paris and Berlin. Nobody talks about a museum in Dakar, Senegal, which is a a wonderful museum of African civilizations there as being the equivalent to this, and so on. So there are concrete things that we can do. We have begun as a result of social movements over the last 20 years, but particularly since 2020, to correct some of those things. We are beginning a conversation about a financial correction called reparations. This is enormous amounts of money were used, for example, in Britain to repay not people who went through slavery, but people who owned slaves were given huge amounts of financial compensation when slavery was abolished. So much money was spent In 1838, to compensate the British who owned slaves, that the government finally paid it off in 2015. It took that long to, you know, and governments have quite a lot of money. It's not like they're taking it out of out of their pay packet, you know. It took them, in other words, nearly two centuries to pay this back. Huge amounts of wealth, and you can measure this throughout the country. And there's a project at University College London which does this. Where did that money go? And it went into created in the Industrial Revolution. It went into the new railroads that made Britain a power at that time. But it also went into building things like the National Gallery, which is the elite museum on Trafalgar Square. It went into building some of the nice townhouses that you see around London, including the one where NYU London is now housed. We'll be back
1: next week with Professor Mirzoff, and we're going to be talk about The Brutish Museums by Dan Hicks. And it's about uh, exactly what we were just going to continue where we left off um, talking about museums, their social importance, their implications, how they got some of the stuff that they got, how maybe they should give back some of the things that they have, and uh, how all that shakes out in practice. So join us next week. We'll be back with Professor Mirzoff. book society podcast is brought to you by me lucas canter santiago and produced by chris peters we do new episodes on fridays we have a lot of episodes you can listen to some back catalog if you like the show please give it a review you can review it on apple or spotify or wherever you get your podcast takes a few seconds helps out the show helps other people find it and we really appreciate it all right see you next week You know, when you mentioned that there were 48,000 statues of military leaders in the United States, or most of them were military leaders, I thought, oh, that's about as many as are around Buckingham Palace. <laughs> um, almost. Uh, I, I, when I was walking around there, I was like, how many generals has this country had?